Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. We're in our new studio. Yay! Yay! Well, actually, our old studio, but it's had a, a complete basement. Yes, a good <laughs> renovation, a good renovation. I hope you guys are doing well. Um, I just got a message from somebody saying, I can't find a feed. We're, we're just on, so I hope you um, have found it. So... Like I said, it's an exciting day. Like I said, back in the um, back in the studio, it feels kind of like a homecoming. So just really happy to be here. Thank you all for joining us, and we have a really, really brilliant session for you today. Um, well, all of our episodes are brilliant, but really excited about this one. Yes, yes, <laughs> this one is awesome. I am pleased. Well, we're, both of us are pleased to welcome to the show Dr. Nafis Khan, who's an associate professor at Clemson University. He is also um, a curricular advisor for the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, which is what this show is all about. He serves on the African Diaspora uh, Consortium, and he also works on the advisory committee of the, of the diaspora. So he is very, very steeped and very, very knowledgeable about the African diaspora and kind of how our African ancestors started coming here. So with all that, Nafis, Dr. Thank you so much, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess just getting straight into it, what was it about the, the African, or if you want to talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved with the African diaspora and have, it seems as though have made it your life's calling to, um, <laughs> to do this work. Well, thank you. Thank you, No, for this opportunity. Um, well, the a few different avenues that kind of come together, I think is the best way to think about it, um, a confluence of factors, if you will. Um, I mean, so my, my background, I'm originally from New York, mother's from Jamaica, father's from India. Um, and so in, in that way, kind of just part of the diaspora, if you will, right, in those experiences. But um, more directly, um, it wasn't until graduate school when I was doing work on and, and I was taking a, a graduate history course on the history of Brazil and the question, the, the information around um, the, the fact that Brazil had the, has currently the largest African descendant population outside of the continent of Africa. And, and even though growing up, you would always, I, I knew that there were black folks outside of, you know, it, across the globe, but you didn't understand the scale of it, right? You, I didn't necessarily really think consciously about um, how many or just where people were. And so that kind of, you know, sparked a curiosity. It's like, wait a minute, how are, how are we learning about it? How are we talking about it? How do we remember it, right? So my direct field is in education. And so I look at how, how, we, how the history of slavery more specifically, um, but history of slavery, the slave trade and, and the like are presented in textbooks, right? What kind of narratives are told? And often they're very singular and narrow, right? They, we talk about our own country, but we don't kind of get a sense of that scale. Um, and so that's kind of what brought me into, you know, the more particularly working with the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, uh, the Slave Voyages Project beginning in 2006. Um, I started with the project right after it received funding um, from the National Endowment for the Humanities while I was at, um, at Emory University. And uh, to move it from a CD-ROM to online and make it freely available. And so I joined the project just around there as this curriculum development uh, advisor and then I've worn a ton of different hats uh, throughout this endeavor and continue to do so. Um, so I, I, I feel kind of lucky in that 
I wasn't a traditional historian. I came in from the idea of, well, how are we learning about it? How are we teaching about it? How are we sharing these, these, these um, narratives, these stories as an educator? And, um, and so that, that's been kind of uh, my perspective in kind of making sure it's, it's shared and disseminated in ways that are, um, for lack of a better word, digestible, right? And, and, and engaging um, and to think about those questions that um, it's not just simply, you know, taking the archive and making it online. It's also how can we help uh, people to navigate it as best as possible. Excellent. Well, I, for one, and I know many, many others genuinely yeah. appreciate your work. Mm. And I'm trying to think of the best way to summarize this without giving you like the, the war and peace. <laughs> so the, I do have a number of identified Africans in my family tree. So there's mm -hmm. the 1619 Africans that came from Ndongo that were brought mm -hmm. to Jamestown. So they're fairly well documented. We know the name of the ship. We kind of know the whole skullduggery that, that happened around them. Mm -hmm. My next ancestor uh, was a woman called Venus, um, who was smuggled into North Carolina about 1819, 1820. So that was long after the importation mm -hmm. of Africans were, was made illegal. So because she was smuggled into North Carolina, we don't, we'll never know what ship she came on or any of that, because they were breaking the law. So they, they hit their tracks. But wasn't the, the, the Clotilda, was, wasn't mm -hmm. that one um, an illegal one? That was illegal too. That was very illegal. Yeah. Considering yeah. how late that was. Yeah. Um, but my introduction to the slave trade database actually mm -hmm. happened during, um, I've got a wonderful team researching the weeping time people for me, uh, with me. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, those are the 440 people sold by Pierce Meese Butler um, in Georgia over three days. And there's a whole group that are working on tracing the lineage to the present day, finding their descendants. I'm working mm -hmm. on the strand that's pushing the story back to the first, mm -hmm. to their African ancestors who were brought here by Henry Lawrence and also a slave importation firm called Middleton and Brailsburg. And luckily for me, Middleton and Brailsburg, well, they all did. They advertised each lot of enslaved Africans that were being imported. So I had the name of the ship, which they always included in their advertisements, the name of the captain, how many Africans there were, and where they came from. And then because of that, I was able to go to your database online. And again, thankfully that is freely available. And I was actually able to get much more information on those ships, um, particularly the, the name of the captain was confirmed. Uh, exactly where they came from was confirmed, but it also gave you the whole list of the crew member. Mm. Um, because again, mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of people who are descended from these people have what they don't understand in their DNA results. Why am I showing this? Why am I showing that? Well, it's a slave ship. It's it took weeks, if not months, months to get here. The, mm -hmm. you know, the men on the ship being the men on the ship, and they had lots of enslaved females. And they did what they did. They did what they did. Um, so I've made note of all of that. So mm. basically, if anyone is showing kind of what seems like a confusing DNA result, they go, mm -hmm. to, they go to the genealogy adventures tree and they look at the, the Molly and Matilda that rocked mm. up in Charleston or Beaufort um, mm. around 1764. Oh, that's why I've got snow DNA. Mm -hmm. Look at that. There was a snow who was actually on the ship. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's been brilliant. And I've got a lot of questions about ship logs and, and things like that to ask you later on. How difficult was it for you to actually 
get a hold of that information to be able mm -hmm. to summarize it on the website yeah. and also how I don't want to say reluctant. I don't want to make it sound negative. How much, how, what level of cooperation did you give with the right, get from the rights holders mm -hmm. to be able to release that information? Oh, no, those are wonderful questions. So the work that culminating in the website is actually, you know, decades old, you know, well before I ever, you know, got, got began with this project in 2006. But, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, the historians who were working on the slave trade, in particular, the economic historians, they were scattered. They were ever wherever they were across the globe in England and Brazil and the, U the U.S. and New Zealand. Um, and it kind of uh, there's a, a kind of a story where David Eltis, who's kind of the main principal investigator, kind of the main historian who kind of envisioned this, uh, had a chance meeting in an archive with uh, I believe it was Steve Barrett, who's another historian. I believe he was based in New Zealand. Um, and they had their own individual archives, right? They had their own collection that they identified within um, the British archives, British National Archives, Maritime Archives, and but it was scattered, right? Each one were only publishing in their little little kind of corner of the, the trade, and that conversation began, and it took about a decade and a half for the technology to come around to make it a CD-ROM, right? But you know, the CD-ROM was a major jump forward. But at the time, so this is 1999 when it was finally published. So this chance meeting in the 1980s kind of took decades to, to culminate and to get historians to agree to share the information that they had been collecting over, you know, over careers. Um, and that CD-ROM, though, as, as an important step forward as it was, it was $300, right? I actually still have it on my shelf. Um, it was, it's $300, right? I mean, who, who realistically... Can, can purchase that. It's you're, you're pretty much institutions, universities, or anyone who just has that kind of disposable income. Um, and CD-ROMs are limited, right? You can't update them as easily, right? You have to make a whole new data set. Uh, further, the number of records on the CD-ROM were um, 27,000 voyages, right? In which a voyage is counted as when they leave their port of home, their home port, head to one or multiple ports um, to purchase enslaved Africans and then across the Atlantic to, to sell and then wherever their end port was. It could be to return back to Liverpool, for example, or um, wherever, whatever happened. So that'd be one voyage, right? So there was 27,000 of them. But there was a huge lack of data from Brazil, in, in particular Brazil, that you know they knew that Brazil and Portugal collectively were the largest slave traders, but they didn't have access to that because the relationships weren't there. The historians weren't participating in the same way. Um, so there was, there was a known gap and it was a huge gap at that point. Um, so all that being said, so it was the, the government records, court records. It was the, so the rights holder doesn't come in in the same degree. Right. Um, and one of the things that's really, I think um, for, for people to kind of dive into if, if they're interested in finding out, is the sources are all listed for every uh, voyage record. There's at least, I think the number is about 70% of the voyages has at least two to three sources. Some have as many as six or more. Others sometimes only have one, right? There's only an advertisement, only one bill of sale that indicates that this ship had occurred. Um, but uh, all, um, but what that means is there's, you can kind of track down where, who's holding the, that record, right? That logbook, that um, advert, advertisement, that um, court record. 
um, that speaks to this particular, and it's both primary and secondary sources in, in many cases. Um, so the, the sources as a, as a kind of, a, 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 there's actually five databases on the site and I can talk about them a little bit later, but as almost another database in and of itself, uh, the sources kind of speak to that idea of where are they, right? Where is this information? Um, one other thing that I will share that was shared with me of a kind of one of the harsh um, or the unfortunate realities of doing historical work is there's a component called the African Names Database, um, which is it's a very narrowly kind of experience and, and the, the, I'll go into further what it means, but it's 93,000 names of individuals who were uh, sold onto board on, on board slave ships, but then were freed um, for varying reasons and the names were recorded. And the story was um, David Eltis and another uh, Nigerian historian, Ugo, um, uh, oh, got to find a second name, but it'll come back to me. Um, he, he's at uh, UCLA. Um, they were in the archives in, in Nigeria and they took a photograph of a blog book of the names. And as they turned the page, the page disintegrated. Wow. And so there's that moment of, you know, they took the picture, you know, thankfully, but then it's, it's gone, right? Because archives across the globe have varying abilities, capabilities, and um, I'm trying not to say standards, but just, uh, you know, capabilities to, in terms of uh, preservation. And so that particular logbook, you know, that page is now gone, right? Those names are gone. Um, and so there's, there's that kind of component in addition to, as you're at your question around um, kind of, uh, navigating kind of collections. Um, the one thing in terms of rights, uh, images, it comes up uh, a, a bit more. So there are images on the site. Um, and those are the ones that we, it's not a large uh, collection, but those are the ones we, we secured um, copyright, you know, approval from primarily the British, uh, um, British National Museum, I believe, um, for most of them. Um, but yeah, you still do have to negotiate those things. But the, the actual data set, right, since these are not the images of the, the primary source documents. It's kind of the, the data from them. Um, they're still, um, you, you're not kind of reprinting kind of those, those archives in that. Okay. Um, one quick question I have, sure. hopefully it's quick before I give you a question from Dee Turner, yes. is I'm at the stage of my research where I am trying to find the individual ship logs. Mm -hmm. And again, just to remind everyone for the period that I'm looking at, this is the colonial period. So those records will not be here in the, in the United States. Mm -hmm. These records were part of, at least the ones that I'm looking at, are part of the, is it called the, the, Royal, the Royal Africa Company's mm -hmm. logs? Because that's basically the company that was controlling slavery from, mm -hmm. from Britain at any rate. So I have emailed now probably 11 different British repositories mm -hmm. um, asking if they have ever heard of these ship logs. I've even given them the dates. This is the ship, this is the captain, this is the date, this is where he left, this is where he arrived. And he went back to either Bristol or Liverpool, depending on the ship, mm -hmm. and saying, do you have a log? This is why I'm researching anything that I can find of those logs that will give me some idea of the, the grouping of Africans. Because to see, to see the number, you know, there are 350 people from the Congo on a mm -hmm. ship doesn't tell me that much, except there were 300 people. Thanks to your website, I know how many of the people that they originally transported died mm -hmm. between Africa and here. 
but I'd like to see breakdowns on the number of men, the number of women, the number of girl children, boy yeah. children, and I hate saying this, they're infants. We're yeah. talking about last week's show, Getting Your Mind and Spirit Right. You think there are babies yeah, I was, on those shows. You, you started asking a question because that was I, what he had just said was leading me to that, but I want you to go ahead because I definitely, I'm going to that. Well, you get the alley-oop. Yeah, I'll get the alley-oop. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever heard of there being ship logs that still exist? Yeah, I mean, definitely there are. I mean, I, I don't know offhand in a where if there's a, a larger collection. So just the reason why I know um, one of the later ships, um, the um, the Wanderer, which uh, arrived in Georgia, and another one kind of the illegal ships that came, I think it was 1858, I believe it, it arrived off the coast of Georgia. Um, and I think it was a Charles Lamar, I think it was the, uh, the owner who, who kind of uh, initiated this, this, this ship. But that logbook is actually in Atlanta at Emory University in the rare collection archive, or the actual logbook. Um, that's the same ship that um, the Roots guy, that's mm -hmm. what his, his family, that was. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's the, the Wanderer. He, that was okay. his, where his family came off of. Yeah, and, and it's relatively recent, right? I mean, that's two years before the Civil War. And actually for a, a while, people assumed it was actually the last ship without recognizing the Clotilda, which was mm -hmm. in North Alabama. Even though what's interesting, the Clotilda was in that database from 1999, but it was kind of overlooked for, for whatever reason, um, as, you know, in terms of who's saying the last ship, right? I mean, it, it's kind of a an right. odd um, uh, uh, signifier. But anyway, um, so there are, I know in... Uh, I have colleagues who, um, friends of mine who work in colonial Spanish, kind of um, the, the colonial Spain and their, and their purview and their, you know, in archives in Puerto Rico, in, um, in Spain, of course, and they're able to find those, those records as well, in Havana, um, another one. Um, so they're, they're there, um, but again, I mean, I think to your point, right, they're, what the condition is, um, uh, what the availability of it, the, you know, is it, is it in a, a, a rare books collection type of archive, right? It is a lot more challenging. Um, and, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, they're, they're there, but I, I don't know offhand if it's like, you know, the, the, the percentage of, of how many are surviving um, at this point, right? Yeah, I have a feeling I just have to keep lighting the fire yeah. under them because I've, I've got dual citizenship. I'm also British. <clears throat> yeah. So I can, yeah. I, no, and, as a British. Oh, sorry, just, just to add in, like, you know, kind of as you're sure you've done so, you know, well, is the idea of like, you're taking bits and pieces and trying to put it as, as a puzzle, right? So you're looking for a logbook, maybe was there ever an insurance record or a court record, right? Kind of yes. dive, diving into those um, tangential elements to the story of any given ship and or their owners, right? Were they written up somewhere else? Were they, um, since you have names and, 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 a, and a time frame? It's such an important um, uh, parameter. Those, those are really important parameters to, to kind of see, all right, if I can't get the physical logbook of, of that ship, maybe I can kind of speak to it in another way, indirectly. Right? But, right. And the good thing is, well, not that there can be a good thing with the topic that we're discussing, but all of the major repositories in South Carolina that I contacted, they are exceedingly interested in this. Mm -hmm. so. But your follow-up question was? Well, my follow-up question was, how are you able to deal with all this? I mean, yeah. God, I, I'm having the trouble that I'm having just 
just by finding endogamy in my family. <laughs> and so to have to deal with actually um, seeing these logbooks with these names in it, I like I purposely did not get involved with the with the Pierce Butler thing with mm-hmm. you because mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't I wasn't able. Mm-hmm. I knew that I just I wasn't able. I, w- I would have jumped in. You know, I would mm-hmm. jump in. But I wasn't able. I didn't think that I would really be able to take seeing so much of people being sold. I mean, where our family is from, they have this nice thick book mm. and, and it's a thick book. And I just took the the liberty one time of just <laughs> counting the rows and counting the pages and just looking at that book by itself. It was 15,000 slaves. And that's not, and it was, it, that was the least amount yeah. because you still had Tom with silver Negro yeah. woman and child all on one row. So it wasn't necessarily, you know what I'm saying? So that was a lot to even, um, to take the fact that I sat there and I'm like, why did I mentally count this? Because now I will never get that number out my head mm-hmm. that there are 15,000 people plus in this book who were enslaved and the majority of them are probably my family, you know? So I, it, how did you do that? How did, how are you, how are you prepping yourself for this? Yeah. Well, I would say it's a, it's an ongoing, right? I don't think you reach a point where it's just, you know, you just handle it, right? I think every, every time I interact, every time I do a conversation or a presentation or teach about the website to varying audiences, right? So last week I was speaking to a group of, burgeoning teachers, um, I think in two weeks I was be speaking to current teachers around using it, it kind of reminds me and, and uh, I always have to kind of prepare myself and how I talk about in particular the slave trade in that sometimes it, for some it, it might be easy to think of it as numbers and that's, the, that's a horrendous way to do so, right? Where you just see numbers after numbers and you're like, these are, these are all lives that were, you know, stolen you know cut short and 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 the like right and it's connected to you right you 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 feel it and you have to sit with it i will say in, in many ways um i think i was lucky in most of my kind of engagement with history has always been a little bit more for lack of a better phrase and kind of the personal if you will right kind of concerning about the, the lived lives and and i don't know you know that might have come from conversations with my father and my mother and just just that idea of like the, the, the power of those stories. So when I encountered and began working with the, the these massive numbers, I it, it was a it wasn't as much of a jump to maintain that sense of these numbers are are all stories. These numbers are all uh, uh, lives. However, that doesn't make it easy, right? Um, you're alluding to the of the infants, right? So in that African Names uh, database, that that particular one. Um, the, na- the, the names were written down for people. And, and, and actually it's their African names or an, an attempt at the spelling of the African names. But for those, for babies and infants, oftentimes they were just written as boy, infant, um, mm. child, baby. And they're, and they're right, they even uh, record the height of a baby, 24 inches, mm. 17 inches, right? They're, they're, they're taking down all this information and as you're thinking about it, it you, you there's a level of you know anger. There's a level of um, pain in the sense of this is uh, uh, 
how do how do you even begin to try to uh, reconcile what what they what they went through, right? And then there's a sense I, I will you know in, in all honesty, there's a sense of resiliency, right? There's a remarkable um, element to that, you know, how if you want to characterize it as black joy or just kind of um, the struggle, if you will, like keeping those thoughts in mind simultaneously as you're looking at a logbook, as you're looking at um, a, a table of, of a bill of sale or or uh, or the, the drawings of a cross-section of a ship, right? And you're seeing the bodies laid out. You know, you're kind of holding and holding and staying with all those, right? So um, for me, it's kind of a, a an understanding that one, in terms of how I approach it, I always remember, try to remember this is intentional, right? This wasn't a an accident. This wasn't just, oh, we just needed to do labor and this is our only choice. No, it was, we made, there were choices made, right? Sugar was the majority, the biggest driver of the expansion of the slave trade. Sugar, as grown from cane sugar, is not a necessity to live, right? We can get the, the needed sucrose from fruits, right? We don't need sugar to live. Yet 67% of all enslaved Africans who were transported through the Atlantic slave trade went to sugar plantations. That's what they were destined for. And so keeping, keeping that idea that this, is a, this was intentional, this was human action, this was human law, this was human policy, um, human behavior in, in all its facets, right? Um, it, it's something to hold on to as well. And it, I don't think it makes it easy, right? It definitely doesn't make it easy in any stretch, but it does, um, for me at least, allow a, a sense of um, context and a sense of um, how, to, how to hold these ideas of, of lived lives, of narratives, of stories, of resiliency, of pain, of struggle, of violence, of, of, of all that, of greed, right? This is that's what this um, speaks to. And so in, in doing these, looking at the table, you're kind of seeing it play out. And then my, my, my always follow-up question is, okay, as someone who's in education, how do I help to um, share that and disseminate that information in a way that's um, engaging and not kind of, a, not a way of, of making someone feel like their, their families is being, or their, or their identity, their people are being more um, victimized, if you will, right? So I'm in, I'm in South Carolina now, right? And so, um, you know, actually literally earlier today, I was down in the uh, low country um, and around Charleston area. And so you can't walk around Charleston without recognizing the slave trade, right? Like, well, you can, I mean, unfortunately many people do. Yeah, I wouldn't to, care. To, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it real with you. I I really you know me, Brian. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't I I I'm not going to and no pun intended sugarcoat anything. Yeah, no, I, I literally would not. I'm not gonna sugarcoat anything. I'm not here to make you feel like a victim. But in the same instance, you have to know what you did, what was done, and yeah. I think that that's one of the biggest issues today when it comes to. Um, the education of both on, you know, for both blacks and whites, yeah. they don't know what they really did. Like it's, it's not discussed. It's not talked about. It is, what is the word that I'm looking for? It's, um, it's kept quiet. It's really mm -hmm. kept quiet as far as slavery is concerned. And we have to open up on it and we mm -hmm. have to have that conversation because in order to have, in order for us to move forward from where we are today with the climate that we are in today, we have to have this conversation. So you're awesome 
for for sugarcoating it and everything. But I'm gonna tell you now, I would never to have the the, the information that you have. They are going to they would know, and they better not come to me once I'm into it, and once I find a family member in it. I'm gonna tell you exactly what happened, and it is not gonna be pretty. Oh, oh yeah, and don't don't <laughs> don't don't mistake anything I said in terms of, of making it engaging. This isn't about kind of making it more uh, um, easier to swallow. That's not that's not my intention at all. The point is, you want to make that whoever you're engaging with, you want them to understand the severity of it, the, the realness of it, and so you you want to hold have them sit with it, right? Sit with that uncomfortableness. Sit with that sense of yeah. anger. Sit with that sense of of pain of how could this happen? It's like, not how it did. And it happened over millennia, uh, well, centuries, but then, you know, how long it's been. Um, you know, and it wasn't an accident of who were the people who were, who were um, uh, captured into, this, into this, this, this enslavement, right? It wasn't an accident, right? It was intentional, who, who was done what. Um, and so that's, that's where it is. So I, I, I completely agree. There, there, the conversations around slavery have been, Either you don't talk about it at all to, no, just mention the, the good examples, the good master, which was, you know, gone with the wind type stuff, or you, you then create um, the sense, yeah, it was bad, but, right? Thomas Jefferson was a great writer, but he also had slaves, but that's it. You don't go any further with that, right? That's how it's been told to us for so long, and that's what we need to disrupt, right? That's what we need to, 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 to push back on in as many ways as possible. Right. So I appreciate that for sure. It is, yeah, absolutely. You know me, because I always argue that we don't even have a vocabulary in this country, an agreed vocabulary framework to even mm. be able to discuss it. But mm. the thing that really hit me the hardest when I went to the, the Slave Voyages site the first time <clears throat> was when you start looking at the sheer volume of ships, mm -hmm. our ancestors could have gone anywhere. Because you start looking, you know, it's really heavy towards South America. Then you see the Caribbean coming into it. Then you see America coming into it. And if you filter, say, any given year, mm -hmm. say probably starting from the mid-1700s to the latter part, mm -hmm. there are ships going everywhere. Yeah. And, they're, you know, and they have hundreds of enslaved people in them. Yeah. So it really was just a, a fluke yeah. where, you know, where the enslaved Africans were ending up. And, and one of the other elements that we, was only in the last year or so added to the, the site is the intra-American trade, right? So when, when, when people were brought to Havana, to Jamaica, to uh, Charleston, they didn't necessarily stay in that country or that island. Um, there was a, a very vibrant trade between the Caribbean and New Orleans, between mm -hmm. the Caribbean and Charleston, um, between the Caribbean and Brazil. Um, it was quite active, right? And so that that tells the other another story of like, wait a minute, if if I'm not finding the ship, oh, so for example, the 1619, right? The the White Lion, that ship is not a transatlantic ship; it's an inter-American ship, right? It was it intercepted the Joao Baptiste, which was a Portuguese ship heading ship heading for Mexico. It was intercepted. The White Lion and the Treasurer confiscated people from the, that ship, and those are the two that arrived in Virginia that 1619. In, in I believe what was it August and, and I think a couple months later right. so um, right those, those are inter-American ships the Amistad right because of, it's so famous because of the revolt and also the movie um, that's an inter-American 
that was a ship that was going from one port in Cuba to another port in Cuba when, it, when they took control. And so th that's kind of that other dynamic to it that, you know, it wasn't a linear trade. It wasn't just, okay, things just went to one place. It was much more dynamic and global, right? I mean, when America and the U.S. abolished the slave trade, American slave traders, American shipbuilders, American captains continued to trade. They just sailed under a different flag. They were active in the role in the trading to Cuba and in the trading to Brazil, exceedingly active. Um, the, in, some have argued that the shipbuilding industry of Baltimore, right, which is fought after the slave trade uh, was abolished, was in part fueled by the creation of slave ships for the Caribbean and Brazil. Um, so it, it kind of speaks to how much of a global, really, you know, a global scale this, this was. And again, some of my DNA matches made sense because some of these ships would go from Africa to, say, Bermuda or Jamaica, yep. sell a couple of sell a couple of enslaved Africans for provisions, whether that was for food, water, rum, whatever it was. Then they would then they would come to the states. So you can think that's why we have DNA matches there. You think you have siblings or a parent and a child. Yeah, I have one another gets, question, but yeah. I want you to ask these because these question is a very good one. So mm -hmm. since you already have it pulled up, because I'm okay. still sending people links. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One question that we have, and I'm going to try to summarize it, and it's from a, a viewer called D. Mm -hmm. um, we know we rough, you know, we know the conditions that the Africans were held in in Africa, mm -hmm. the, the slave ports. What's the kind of sliding scale as to how long they were actually there for before mm. they were actually put on the ships? Oh, that's such a great question because it's one that most people don't think about. When they think about the Middle Passage, they think just on you know a ship leaves, a ship arrives, and they're un they're unloaded, right? They could be in in held before being put on board a ship for weeks. They could be held for weeks before the ship departs, and then on board the ship. And then they could be held on board the ship for weeks once it arrives at its port. Because if anyone's ever seen how ports function, right? You don't just, a ship doesn't just show up and immediately it's allowed to dock and unload. There's a coordination in terms of how it's, how it's run, right? You have to get permission to, to offload. You have to wait for other ships to offload. And all the while people are being held, right? And while there's a, you know, this is the, the callous thinking of it, right? How insidious this was. There's, you know, the captains and the owners want their cargo to survive, uh. but they're not treated as humans either, right? They're, you, you want them to survive because they, you want to earn money off of their, their body, but you're, gonna, you, you're still going to do what you will. You're still going to treat them as, as cargo in that sense. So the, the amount of time before the middle passage, if you will, that journey actually took place could be at least weeks, if not, uh, 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 you know, like a full week to two weeks and sometimes even longer, right? And it all had to do with what was going on at that time. If there was an outbreak of a disease, yellow fever, for example, at a port in, in um, let's say, Wida, right? In modern-day Cameroon, right? Uh, yeah, modern-day Cameroon, Nigeria. Um, the ships would, would be held before leaving, right? Because the, if there was an outbreak at the port, that the disease would be, would be on board the ship and those ships would actually be, have a much higher mortality rate, right? Wow. So they would, be, they would hold them. And, and likely when they would arrive, say in Charleston, there's a, one, I 
they have one of these advertisements that we see in textbooks all the time. And it actually gives a, 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 as, as a way to kind of show how, how important, how um, prized, I'm using that really intentionally, um, the, the ship has not been in contact with, the, with Charleston where there was a smallpox outbreak at the time. And so the ship was moored offshore and no, there's been no contact with the land. Therefore, you really want to buy this group of people because they're, they're not diseased, right? So, but the ship is held all the time. The people are held on board the ship. Um, in those so, tightened quarters, in those, they're, they're just there? So yes and no, right? So one of the dynamics of, of the actual transporting of people, which something like something, you know, talking about learning something, right? I didn't realize this till just a few years ago was during calm weather, during the day, most ships, slave ships would bring the captives on, on deck, above, above deck, right? And then they'd be chained to this large chain um, and shackled to each other in pairs. And just the men, the women for the most part would be with women and children on the other side of the ship barricaded from where the men were, right? And then at night, those, and it could be anywhere from, you know, 300 to 600 to however large number of people are being carried would be brought back down, chained back up under in the hole, right? So whether or not they were, say, at the port or before they left or when they were leaving, whether or not they were below deck or above deck is, is hard to specify, right? Because it would have to do with, is there some threat of them resisting, right? Is there calm weather? Um, by the way, none of it has to do with how you know how you treat a person, but right, that's that's not in the conversation. It's really right. um, is there calm is there calm weather or um, you know for some reason should they not be above 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 deck? Um, but yeah, so it, the journey is not just so on the database. You can see the the average length of time the the middle passage. I believe how the variable is labeled, um, and on average it's about sixty days. Right, but that that average, if you're going to, to Brazil, that average is about 54 days from most likely Angola. If you're going to the U.S. to Charleston, that that average is about 67 days, right? And that's a, that's a two week difference, depending on the destination and um, of that ship. And so that's the longer someone is held in confinement, the increase of all the the things of you know dysentery, um, dehydration. Um, gastrointestinal uh, issues. I mean, the, the, the um, yeah, it, it is, it is something to, to behold that people were not just, not just put through it, um, but it is, yeah, it, it, it's quite remarkable of how horrendous those conditions were. Um, and sometimes worse than other places where people were brought up on charges for being so bad, right? And, and that's, that's something that to, um, it, it doesn't make it easier to understand. Right. But at no point did they stop and think, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about, there was a year in particular, and I can't remember what year it was, but Middleton and Brailsford, they were suffering huge losses from the mm -hmm. transportation. They were losing as many as half of the enslaved Africans. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading correspondence. You know, this is between men talking about human beings going, well, how are we going to counteract this? But they're not talking about medicine or any of that kind of... Basically, it was the 18th century version of shine some light inside of you to get rid of COVID. That, get out, okay. That, <laughs> that, that, 
that yeah. kind of that okay. kind of conversation. <laughs> okay. Because you couldn't. I get it. You you know you can't take them out of their. You can't take the men out of the chains because they're going to rebel. Because a lot of, again, I'm getting a lot of sense that that was a real fear for them. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, that was the point that I had to stop my research on the weeping time. It was, I was, I was reading a letter from a Bristol-based English captain talking about how to set an example for the rest of the men on a ship. Someone did try to break free. He did break free, actually. He tried to get his comrades in arms out of their chains. Mm -hmm. They did not kill him directly. They cut him, and then they threw him overboard so that the sharks would get him. Mm -hmm. And I had, to, I, had to, I had to stop. At that point. I, I, that's why I, I can't. I, so my question is, because I think it's easier for us to assume that our enslaved ancestors were docile. That were no, I can't assume that we have more than our family. Who can assume that she was docile at But all? I'm thinking, these people new to research are going to probably think, well, they couldn't have fought very hard. But what was, because I'm still kind of new to, to this level of research and this kind of research. From your experience, how infrequent or frequent were kind of rebellions or escape attempts made on, on the ships? So what's interesting is the, the rate of which, to phrase it in that, in that language, the rate of, of um, resistance or rebellion actually affected the decisions uh, made by traders, right? So um, there was an increase in revolts um, along what was kind of the Senegambia and Sierra Leone region of West Africa. Um, so that's Senegal, Gambia, um, modern day, a little bit into Cote d'Ivoire, but not as much. Um, you can actually see there's an increase in the number of revolts on board uh, or at the port, right? Most revolts took place, they didn't take place in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Most took place either near, relatively close to Africa, or near uh, a port in, in the Americas, right? Kind of when, when land was in sight, for the most part. Um, what would happen was then the traders would slowly begin avoiding those ports. They began looking for captives from other, from Angola was, you know, almost five and a half million people were taken out of modern day Angola, West Central Africa, right? The, the interpretation that they were somehow more docile is, 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 a, is a skewed thing, as if it's a character trait of the individual, right? It actually has to do with more so the, the structure of the trade that existed on the continent. Right in that region, the different kingdoms, who was in control, who who engaged in the trade. Right, it it gets into that that speaks to the degree to which um, the amount of trade. It wasn't like one group was more warrior spirit type. That that's not really the the, the takeaway, right? Because you're not you, you don't have the evidence of the of, of people's kind of characters, right? Some argued that in West Africa, because of the um, wider spread of Islam, you had more. Uh, more Africans or captives who were literate and in, in, in Arabic as well as their as their other languages, if you will, right? And that that literacy in, in Arabic facilitated more um, uh, communication, which could lead to more revolts, right? Which there was a famous one in Brazil in 1835, um, the, the, the led by Muslim Muslim slaves, right? Um, in the U.S., that happened in, out in I think the Stonewall Rebellion, right? It was organized by by um, Arabic speaking, right? So there's, there's different dynamics that people have argued are contributing factors, but the, the fact remains, you can clearly see, at least in the incidents reports, if you will, 
that there was a greater number earlier on in certain periods from that part of West Africa. And you would see the trade slowly, and for other reasons, not just that, but you can see a direct, a still a correlation between the incidences of revolt on board ships leaving or at port in Africa um, or just off the coast. Uh, and then the traders, slave traders looking for, to go to other ports that either had more, um, how do I say this? Uh, the trade networks were more stable, if that makes sense, in terms mm -hmm. of, um, how the how captives were brought in and how the, the, the stability of the kingdoms that engaged in the trade, the different African kingdoms that engaged in the trade. You found there was more stability in some places and more, um, uh, and so the, the number of revolts were not as um, high um, okay. in, in those areas. So one question that I also have, and I don't know if you have an answer for it, I don't know if any historian actually has an <laughs> answer to this one, but as you pointed out, set, um, the enslavement of Africans was a century-old thing. It, mm -hmm. it was being done way before the English and the French did it, you know, going back to the Spanish and the Portuguese. So have you ever seen any evidentiary kind of writing or comments amongst the Africans who at some point had to have realized, wait a minute, mm -hmm. we're sending all of these people, we're sending our brothers and sisters over this yeah. ocean, but none of them are coming back. Because yeah. we know Africans practice a different form of slavery. It wasn't, for yeah. the most part, it wasn't a life sentence. Right. Whereas, right. But I have to think at some point, they had to think, wait a minute, we've just sent hundreds, if not thousands of people. It's mm -hmm. 20 years on and none of them have come back. But why would they think that if, if they were fighting them and it was the spoils? But I said most... African slaves were spoils, but they had, after a certain point of time, they could either go home, they could stay part of the tribe, they could marry, they weren't, it wasn't a lifelong True, but that was with, within each other. They were sending them with someone else, so this wasn't them. But they might have thought that the Europeans had the same, I hate, I mean, again, this we don't have a language for this, that maybe right. the Europeans had the same approach to it that, that they, they had. Okay. But at some point, the penny had to drop. So, no one was coming back. Yeah, you, you really hit on such a, a kind of a, a, a level of complexity of trying to understand how could this play out in the way that it did, right? Because we know Europeans weren't the ones who physically went into the continent, especially at that period, right? Their imperial kind of hold over Africa was actually after the slave trade for the most part, the transatlantic component. There's still an Indian Ocean trade that, that carried on. Um, but it was the existing kind of network of trade in people, mostly uh, war captives, right? Um, that they kind of, uh, um, I'll say exploited, right? Kind of, and they grew to such a degree. I believe the, the historian is Butch Ware. Um, I think he's at University of Michigan. He's written on how uh, the role that, not just Islam in part, but he, he's looking at in, in uh, West Africa, I believe um, around the Gold Coast and Sierra Leone region. Um, on how uh, the resistance to the trade, not, not just revolts on board ships, but the actual kind of more organized resistance that took place on the continent of Africa, right? And which is speaking to kind of, I think, part of your question of, well, did, when did they learn that this was, this was not the same type of captivity, that people were being held, not just for their lives, but their children's, it was inherited. Right, the slavery was was not just the life of the person being sold; it was the person, it was their offspring as well. And this is the role that, the role of the exploitation and rape of women, 
um, is, is so significant to this because it's carrying, it's expanding the, the forced labor, right? Um, and so there's different arguments in terms of when did a more collective, if you will, African identity come into play, right? When did it emerge from, uh, change from a Fonti selling an Akan a, a, a or Ewe person into slavery is they might as well be selling a European, right? They're just as different as, as, as they are to them. However, you know, it, so it varies of when does that, I'm gonna say consciousness, but I don't mean like they, in kind of a complete epiphany, but when was that uh, thought kind of emerged? It, it varied, right? And, and, and it's been argued that it's in, you know, as early as the 1700s or maybe even earlier in, in some parts, but not in others, um, you know, the, 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 it, it, what, it, what is it? Did it start somewhere and, and spread? Did it kind of simultaneously, the resistance to it? Was it just because of who was in charge in those regions, right? Or if there were warring uh, tribes or, or states within Africa, um, among Africans, did that, did that factor into it, right? But, it, but either way, by the, by the, definitely by the 17th and 18th century, or 18th and 19th century, definitely, there was a, a, a much greater understanding of what was happening right because you also have to remember the crew of many of the ships they had africans were part of the slave ship crew too not in large numbers right but there was a a, a mixture there was in, there was information coming back people who worked in the ports of the varying places um they knew there was there was conversations and, and details being shared right um so it, it's debatable about when if you will or how widespread that awareness takes hold right but there is definitely a resistance in Africa to the selling of other Africans. In some contexts, it's this is where the religion kind of comes into play in differing ways, right? It's we're against the selling of, of, of Muslims. Well, also in others, right? It's kind of bad, but we're really, we're focused on our group too, right? So it's, there's a nuance to it, right? And it's not all Muslims are one way or not, and it's not all, you know, but you, you, you want to, the arguments are around that there's, there is resistance in Africa, which is a really important thing that we don't often talk about, especially in the U.S. We don't talk about, we, we sometimes will use the phrase the African side of the trade, kind of as in, um, you know, they sold us in that, that language. that's it, right. Right? But we don't talk about, wait a minute, did everyone sell? No. People resisted. People didn't want their family members sold. People didn't want their neighbors sold. And, and there was resistance. But when and how and uh, to that, to what degree is, is, an ongoing um, uh, question, and but we do know that it happened. It's, it's definitely there. Well, because we have one person who actually made the comment. He was like, "Were well, were they expected to come back after being sold?" So, mm. like for example, yeah. if I'm if 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 I'm selling somebody, if selling you to somebody, am I talking to them like, "Okay, well, this is the trade deal. You have him for this amount of time, and then I expect him back." Mm. Right. You know, was that kind of thing even done? Like, do they have that kind of writings that are in in these books? And and so, obviously, they lied because yeah. <laughs> they didn't if send they them did, back. They, you know, whether, whether or not any uh, uh, so an African person who is who engaged in the trade had expectation that I'm just selling a prisoner, and just like it's practiced, you know, maybe earlier on in the years of the trade when it was 
when the Portuguese were just doing off the coast to the island of Madeira or Sao Tome and Principe, the, the islands just off the coast of Africa, which were, um, this not to demean it, but somewhat kind of trial sugar plantations, right? Where they were uh, uh, getting a sense of is how possible this was um, to scale it. Um, and then by the 1500s, right, it's, it's Spain is the first slave ship, right? It's, um, uh, I think now is fairly comfortably the 1520 uh, ship to, um, uh, uh, Brazil, uh, Puerto Rico, sorry. Um, but anyway, you know, whether or not they knew, that's that's harder to say, or they expected that they would return. I would say that one, as that consciousness, and again, that's a, 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 I'm a little hesitant on using that word, as if, you know, just, you have no sense of it, right? Um, and whether or not that started to matter, but the, the resistance does come up further, even as Europe, the European colonial powers kind of uh, had a stronger and stronger input, and you saw more and more people being sold. That doesn't mean resistance wasn't happening. It could mean that it wasn't as effective as they'd like it to be, but it doesn't mean it wasn't happening. Um, actually, I think this is probably a question from one of us. Someone's confused by 6% European Jewish in their DNA, and I have a partial answer for that, as in both in the American colonies and the Caribbean colonies. Um, there were Jewish people who were involved in the, in the slave trade like the rest of the Europeans yeah, were. Yeah, pretty much. Um, actually, one of the, the, yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. They were yeah. involved in that, so that's how that DNA happened. Right, and then we also have a lot of people who are asking about, like, where can they find your research and things like that. And we will be sharing the website on, mm -hmm. on this particular thing, but if you want to go into, like, briefly what's on your website for them so that they know you know, what it is that they're looking for, that would be great. Can I just jump in for a hot sec? Kudos to whoever designed your website and the way that they've done the database. It is so flexible. You can search by year, by name of ship, by name wow. of captain, wow. all of that stuff. I, so, I will definitely relay that message. Just, I, I, and I'm smiling because uh, or I'm not a programmer, right? It's a student. <laughs> not, not at all. Um, the, the programs we've had, we've had uh, quite a few, but there's been kind of like maybe four, four of them who have just you know, the two who initially built it, the earliest version kind of laid the foundation. Then one gentleman, Dominguez, uh, Brazilian computer science uh, doctor who just, you know, stayed with him to this day is kind of um, our problem solver, our person to think about how can we make this data that's not clean, it's historical, right? Some records survive, many don't, they're incomplete. It doesn't tell us all the information, it doesn't have dates of everything, it doesn't have the, the breakdown of gender or sex as you were alluding to earlier on. Um, how do we, how do we, make this functional how do we allow the search and we actually just did a, a, a big update just a couple of days ago of, uh, of, the, of the code of, of, to, to make sure there, there were some errors that were coming up or people were having some delayed results and so i'm I really appreciative <laughs> and i will definitely relay that to our on, at our weekly meetings around uh, that that it's appreciative because because it is something that i mean I, i've been i like to say i've been you know in the conversation alongside them at, at times of like the work they've done to the coding part that that behind the behind the, the site, if you will, um, it's been uh, it's been nothing short of just you know it's a. Um, I, I like that they've told that they've told me a few times like this actually piqued their interest right from it's different from normal computer science or different types of big data uh, digital projects. This is quite unique, obviously in the context of enslavement and captivity and the human suffering but also in the nature of the records. What is right. actually telling and what is it not, even more importantly, what is it not telling, right? 
who's not being, what story they're not being told by, by the data there. Right. So in the final, I think we have a minute. <laughs> Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so just real quickly, yeah. the website, so that they will know where to go. Yeah. So it's slavevoyages.org, all one word. Um, and on that site, you'll find, I think I mentioned there's, there's effectively five databases on the site. There's the transatlantic database. I would encourage people to also look at the estimates component because that gives a sense of, well, what's not there, right? Um, it, it estimates upwards the, the number of people and the number of ships. Um, then there's the intra-American, which tries to get that, that Caribbean, um, the Spanish Caribbean, but not as much, mostly the English uh, and, and Charleston, let's say. Um, the African Names Database, though, unfortunately, most likely people wouldn't be able to trace their family to those individuals unless they already know that they're, they're kind of descendants of liberated Africans in either Sierra Leone or Havana, Cuba, okay. right? which were a particular group of people who have a story in and of themselves, but it's their names, their people, right? The, the, the individuals. Um, but I would also encourage people to, to look at the time lapse that we updated and, and placed on the site that I think was linked to the home on the home page. Um, just to get that scale, as uh, color coded uh, dots in each circle is corresponds to the number of people brought on board on any given ship. And um, you can see that some ships are carrying as as few as you know 10 or 12 and as many as 12 to 1300 people on board a ship wow uh, and, and and where they're going um, wow so, yeah there are a lot of things hopefully to to engage with this and, and our email and um they can reach out and report feedback and use through the site itself so uh, we definitely encourage we get those emails and we respond to them as well that's awesome thank you so much Nafis. this was a really very interesting and enlightening show. And I still have a question for you, but I'll do it on the back end later okay, on. No you'll problem, get, you'll get no an problem. email from me because I, I do have one other question, but you'll get Happy. it on, on the email. But that was, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. And would you like to introduce quickly next week? Yes. Next week's show, we are actually going to be talking with the librarian, um, Hollis Gentry, from the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So you guys definitely need to come in, need to check that out because there are great resources at that museum that a lot of people don't even know about. And she's gonna share that. Indeed, we're looking forward to that. And thank you so much for spending your Sunday for us. And you will find that we actually have quite a few shows posted in our events calendar. So definitely check that out. And until next week, Again, thank you, Nafis, for joining us. Thank you as yes, well. Yes, thank you. <laughs> See you guys next week. You. See you guys next week. Thanks.